Open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 8. The book of Psalms, Psalm 8. Follow along, if you would, as I read. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, or your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him rule over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We have been looking at the need and the place for a robust doctrine of creation. And today, and the Lord willing, next Sunday, I want us to consider what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human in light of creation redemption and creation being redeemed for the new creation? At the beginning of this series, we saw that it meant, in part, to be human means to be a creature. And just to review a bit, and so we can be reminded... Human beings are creatures. I've mentioned this before, but I have to keep reminding myself when we sing the doxology, um, praise God, all creatures here below, that includes us. You know, maybe having lived for a time in Missouri, we're creatures and critters, you know, that those are non-human entities. We are creatures. And if, in fact, we are creatures, that means we are part of God's creation. We did not create ourselves, and so we owe our existence to someone else, someone other than ourselves. In our Christian faith, this is the Creator. This is God, the one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. And for the most part, for us, this is not a problem until we begin to consider what it means to be a creature. It it means, we begin with the fact that we are limited. We occupy a particular place. We inhabit a particular place, and our interests sort of go out from that. But I cannot be, as the expression goes, two places at one time. I can only be in one place at one time. If we put this in harsher terms, rather than saying limited, we can say that we are confined. We are limited by that confinement. One might even say we are prisoners. We also find that we are confined by time. And it isn't just that we are mortal, that we will all one day die. I mean, that is a part of it. But we are confined to the present moment. I may, in fact, remember the past. And I may imagine a future. But I can only be here at this moment, in this present moment. I'm confined to this moment. Now that it is past, I'm now confined to this moment. This is what it means to be a creature. 
It also means that we are imperfect, which we can spell out, we can articulate in various ways. Because we are finite, we cannot be perfect. We are not self-sufficient. We are not omniscient. We are not omnipotent. We are imperfect. And this is true even of Adam and Eve before they sinned. Because we are creatures, we, Adam and Eve may have been without sin, but they were not complete. They were not perfect. Well, now that Adam and Eve have sinned, we can easily say that we are imperfect because of our sinfulness. We also saw when we began this series that to say that we are creatures means that we are contingent. That is, we are dependent. We do not plan our own births, um, which I think uh, is annoying to some. And so uh, the idea that we do not plan our deaths, some find equally galling. And so there is a movement whereby we, in fact, will take the reins when it comes to the matter of our death. We are dependent as babies on our parents to feed us and to clothe us. We find that we have a need for companionship. Any number of relationships are things that, in fact, we are dependent upon. But we don't like being limited. We chafe against these limits. I think this is, since Adam and Eve, this has always been a human trait. But in the modern world, I think this has become even more so something that people chafe against. And because of technology, we imagine somehow that we have fewer limits than people had in the past. We also saw earlier in this series that there are those who would reject the notion that we are creatures. And so they would say instead that we are products. You see, if we say, if we affirm that we are creatures, then we are saying that our identity, our meaning, our life, all of this depends on our relationship to the one who created us. He is the one who gives us identity. He is the one who tells us what is our purpose in life. He is the one who gives us life. On the other hand, if we say that we are products, then our identity, our meaning, our life is dependent on something else entirely. I mention this to my students from time to time. If you consider the debate, nature versus nurture, in reality, they are both in the same arena. They are saying that a person is a product, perhaps of nature, perhaps of one's nurture, uh, one's environment. But in any case, a person is seen as a product. And the forces that shape that person are then blamed for whatever goes wrong in that particular person's life. And so a person's genes, a person's family of origin, traumas, failures, successes, our biochemical makeup, market forces, more and more, ideologies, brain chemistry, and so much more are seen as being responsible for how a person turns out and what he or she does. And I have in my notes that this is usually the case for bad things, but not the good things. But I think I have to correct myself and say that this is not entirely true. That oftentimes when we see someone produce something of, of great value and, and of great beauty, it is somehow diminished by saying, well, that's because their parents were like this or because they came from a such and such a background, rather than having some sense that this person as a creature has, by God's grace, produced something of beauty. When a person or persons are not seen as a creature, then, in fact, our society in general is subject, 
It's vulnerable to all kinds of anti-human and anti-life ideologies. And human life is diminished to a great degree. Our answer as God's people, as the church, is in part to have a robust doctrine of creation and to point out the significance of human life. That, in fact, we are to accept and we are to delight in the fact that we are creatures and embrace the fact that, yes, we are limited and we are contingent and we are, in fact, imperfect. But sadly, the church is almost indistinguishable from society in this regard. And the church now simply becomes a means to cope with all of these difficulties, to overcome fears or problems that a person might have. We can see in the church sort of an anxiety, a fear in the way that we participate in the life of our society. We talk about culture wars and we tie the future of the gospel to the outcomes of elections, like the one we just had this past week. It is also seen in the desperate way in which we depend on medical care and increasing prosperity, national security. These things in and of themselves are not wrong. But in fact, how we depend on them reveals, in fact, whether or not we see them as a source of our lives. Uh, Something I I intended to send out this past week, I'll send it out this week to the congregation, is uh, a link to an article that I came across this week that a psychiatrist, we've all heard of post-traumatic syndrome. Um, Now this psychiatrist has, in fact, come up with something called pre Traumatic stress syndrome. And when I was discussing this with Gia, she said, isn't that what we called anxiety? And now we, and so now when somebody says that they have PTSD, we have to say, well, is the P pre or post? Um, In many ways, the church is just as guilty of falling into this, um, this, this fear. We must, in fact, have and recover a robust doctrine of creation in which we will see that we belong to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who made us, who sustain us, who redeem us, who go with us through death, and who will bring us to life in the talus of creation that is the new creation. To be a creature, to be a creature is to be cared for, and to be sustained by life that is inexhaustible and unconquerable. That is the life of God. To be creatures is to know that our identity is eternally guaranteed by the one who is eternal. Why are we afraid? Why are we anxious? To be a creature is to know that we are the creatures of God. Well, with this as a background, I want us to consider what it means to be human, and particularly in light of the telos that one accepts. And today what I want to do is to look, if you wish, at the negative. That is to say, if in fact you believe that the telos of all reality is death, then you will define human beings, or what it means to be human, in a particular way. And the Lord willing, next week we will look, if in fact you believe the telos is the new creation, then you will see what it means to be human, I think, in an entirely and a radically different way. So, if in fact we believe that death is the telos, it is the end of the story, if you wish, for our existence, 
What does it mean to be human? I would, I would submit to you, particularly in our culture today, it means to be, to be human is to be a consumer. And aren't we used to hearing this? It's so familiar that, that we don't even notice it anymore. Living when and where we do, we as Americans consume a disproportionate share of the world's resources. We accept this and we move on. Um, but let's, let's back up a bit and let's tie this in. If, in fact, we see death as the telos of all things, if we do, then what, we, what will guide our life, because death is the end, that's where we're going, that's the telos, what will guide us is the principle behind death. And as we've seen in the series, in Scripture, death is taking and keeping. Life is giving and receiving. But death is taking and keeping. Now, the world is not the way that it should be because of Adam and Eve's sin. The world is not now ruled by giving and receiving, but by taking and keeping. And as I said, the word for this in Scripture is death. We find this in Genesis 3, when Eve saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. The key, I think, to understanding this is the act of taking, that she took that which God said she was not to take. She did not believe that God had given her all that she needed and that he would continue to give and that she would be able to receive. She did not want to be the receiver. She wanted to be the one who took. And so she turned from receiving, that is life, and she turned to taking, which is death. She turned from life to death. And so when death is the telos in our thinking, when we think it is the end of the story, taking and keeping will be our ethos. This is, in fact, the principle that will drive what we do. And so we will see ourselves primarily as consumers. Interestingly enough, there is an irony here, a paradox, that when in fact we are consumers, we find that we are being consumed. Because our lives become thinner, they become shallower, in many ways less abundant. Because we think, in fact, that we are to consume and consume, and continue to consume, but it's never quite enough. And we find ourselves beginning to fade. What we find is that the things that we think we are consuming are, in fact, consuming us. And as we consume more and more, we become less human. And as a result, our anxiety levels rise, and we frantically, frantically consume more and more. This sends us into a whirlpool of despair and anxiety. We hear this, by the way, near the beginning of the book of Joel. It's Joel chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. What Joel speaks of is life simply being stripped and stripped and stripped. And one group of locusts come in and they strip and another one comes in. And 
maybe slowly, but certainly, uh, I don't know the speed of which things happen, but in fact we find that we are being consumed. Our lives are stripped bare by ever successive waves of consumption. And so people buy and buy and buy, but they do so on credit. And so there is spiraling consumer debt. We are surrounded by advertising, by sales flyers, by internet ads. We are told that there are certain things that we didn't even know existed, that we need these things. We weren't even aware that we needed these things until we hear it from advertising. And so we find, in this view of what it means to be human, we are consumers, we are being consumed, and we are consuming others. You only have to read the scriptures. Read the book of Deuteronomy. Read the prophets. Read Jesus and the Gospels, or the Apostle Paul. When we do, we find that, in fact, to participate in injustice, unjust patterns of consumption, means that we are devouring other human beings. We are consuming their lives by the way we live our lives. We are cannibals, plain and simple. The message of Deuteronomy, the prophets of Jesus and of Paul, is that God will not tolerate injustice because it is contrary to life. Injustice is, in fact, a system of action based with death as its telos. The ethos, the reason we do what we do, is if we think, in fact, that death is the end of things, then, yeah, we will do, we will consume, we will be consumed, and we will consume others. Remember that death is taking and keeping, life is giving and receiving. Injustice destroys other people's lives, but it also destroys our lives. But let's, let's, let's understand, justice is not simply a, an arbitrary set of rules. Some rules that this, this is the way you're supposed to behave. Okay? And if you don't, there's going to be trouble, and, and that's what justice is. Justice is, in fact, the order of things that leads to the flourishing of human life. And we'll see this, the Lord willing, next week, of what it means to be a human being, to be a person, being and becoming a person. Justice is not some arbitrary rule or rules set down by a capricious God who likes to see us hop. Yeah, watch them jump. You know, watch them do the things I want them to do. It is, in fact, if we are looking at the new creation as the end of things, this is how we are supposed to live our lives. So, if, in fact, we are guilty of being consumers, defining ourselves as consumers, what are we to do as God's people? First of all, we must repent. And to repent is to turn away from something and turn to something. And so we must turn away from an economy of consumption and turn to an economy of communion. See, as long as our thinking, as long as our longings, our acting are framed by an economy of consumption, as long as we view ourselves as consumers, we will not, we will not be able to break away from the enslavement, the present way of life, which is, in fact, a way of death. 
If in fact being a consumer defines us, it is hard to see beyond death. It, it is. Because we have bought into the economy of consumption, which is an economy of death. So, let's turn to an economy of communion. But what does that mean? What is an economy of communion? I think in our repentance, we need to change our view of ourselves. Rather than seeing ourselves as consumers, we need to see ourselves as people who commune with one another. And we need to begin, as God's people, where the economy of communion is in fact commemorated, where it is memorialized, and that is in the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, we learn that life is not sustained by competition and consumption, but it is by gift and communion that Jesus gave his life that we might have life. Jonathan Wilson, in his book, God's Good World, writes, Every breath I take, every beat of my heart, the continuing knitting together of the molecules in my body, all of this depends on God's grace, climactically enacted in the gift of Jesus Christ for the redemption of creation. Jesus Christ exposes the taking and keeping practices of the world that lead to death. He humiliates them and defeats them. In doing so, he reveals the overflowing giving and receiving that is life, the life of the one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the life of creation redeemed. We need to realize, when we turn from being consumers to being communers, if you wish, that my life is a gift from God. It is not, in fact, a human achievement. Life is sustained by God's grace, not by human effort. I mentioned this last Sunday, what Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We as God's people must refuse to allow the world to press us into the mold of consumption. and We should not let the world define us as consumers. Instead, we must be transformed by God's economy of communion. Sadly, I think the church has bought into the economy of consumption rather than of communion. I remember John telling me years ago, uh, of speaking to a, someone who worked at a church, and he said, so how are things going at your church? He said, it's great. People love the product. It's like, that's not how we want to see the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. If, in fact, we turn from being consumers to those who commune with one another, then we will grow in our recognition of a very basic truth that we should all know perfectly well and we so easily forget, and that is that God is life. God is life. And if we begin to see this, on some level, some measure, we might be able to say, by God's grace with the psalmist, Who, whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth I desire nothing besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Simply put, God is life. Consider that in God's economy of communion, 
means that we will seek to live more and more deeply in communion with the life of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And by God's grace, the consumptive desires of our hearts will begin to fade. It also means that we who are guaranteed eternal life can joyfully give and share in the lives of others with generosity, with hospitality. You see, in an economy of consumption, generosity or hospitality can be seen one of two ways. Either it is an act of manipulation, that I am being generous to you because I am expecting something back in return somewhere down the road, or it is in fact seen as something that is quite foolish in which you will extinguish yourself, you will give away something and get nothing in return. But we who are God's people in the economy of communion should be able to give freely because these things are not what define us. This isn't what makes up life. Life, God is life and his life is in us. And if in fact the economy of communion transforms my vision, my attitude, my way of living, then I will be able to live in communion with other followers of Jesus Christ. And in a real sense, I will be conscious of them when I shop, when I eat, when I plan a vacation, in my giving, and not simply to church, but elsewhere. But let's face it, let's face it, living when and where we do, consuming is the driving force of our culture. So what is the answer? Well, there's a part of me that says, well, what we need to do is suppress our desires. That somehow we need to detach, almost a a, a Zen-like thing, a Buddhist thing, just sort of detach from reality and, and therefore we will no longer have desires. Let us understand that desire is, in fact, something God has created within us. Desire itself is not wrong. It is when desire is on the wrong thing or done in the wrong way that it becomes sin. I'm convinced that to suppress your desires is not the answer. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Weight of Glory, wrote this. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised us in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with money and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are, too, we are too, far too easily pleased. The answer isn't to get rid of our desires. It is to turn from consumption to communion. And that is where our desire should be. Let's face it, we have been given much in terms of resources, health, education, money, technology. And we are going to do something with these things. That's, that is the nature of things. The question is, which economy will we follow? Which definition of what it means to be human will we listen to? Which telos are we looking at? Are we looking at death as the end of the story? Are we looking forward to the new creation? The gospel, or the church, has been given the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the good news of the redemption of creation. This has been given through Jesus Christ as God sent him into the world. This is good news. This is wonderful news. And the parable that Jesus told, it is the pearl of great price. It is worth all that we have. By the way, just a, a side note here. I think that we need to understand that as God's people, stewardship is not simply giving our money to church versus putting it in something else. It rather begins with a radical transformation of our vision and our hearts. In the, in the midst of the marketplace of desire, we need to ask ourselves what we can do as God's people in the church to transform our vision. And it begins with understanding creation. That God created the world and it was the beginning of the project that one day will end with the new creation. Adam and Eve sinned and things got off track, but God is still, that project he began with creation is still going toward that. Is that how we see things? Or do we think that, well, when I'm dead, that's the end of the story. And so I've got to do all that I can because this is what will define me as a human being. If we reject the telos of death and embrace that of life, then the answer to the question, what does it mean to be human, will be radically different. And the Lord willing, this is what we will look at next week. What does it mean to be a human being? As God's people, we should say, it does not, it should not mean that we are consumers, but that by God's grace, we participate in an economy of communion. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that we are so much a part of the world we live in that it, it is hard for us to step back and see ourselves clearly. To see, in fact, how we have bought into a culture of death. That sometimes, in fact, we may try to spiritualize or Christianize, to baptize certain things that are patently wrong. But because we see ourselves as consumers rather than as those who are to be in communion, it, it, it changes how we see things. In a radically consumptive society, may we, by your grace, by your spirit, see ourselves not as consumers, but as communers with one another and with you. You who created us, who sustains us. You who are life itself. May we come to understand that. And with the psalmist say that our hearts may fail us, our bodies may fail us, but our hope is in you because you are life. Father, I'm convinced that any transformation, any repentance in our lives will require the work of your spirit. This is not something we can do by simply flipping a switch in our brains. 
We need your grace. May your spirit work in our hearts. I thank you that you've called us together today to worship you. I ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through this world in the coming week. We do remember this boy that he has mentioned, Primo, that you would touch him and give the doctors the skill and the wisdom to know what to do in his situation. And we thank you for the two years that you've given to Marcus. And ask that you continue to watch over him, give Jason and Gwen the wisdom as they raise him. Now we ask that your spirit would go with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.